When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to another episode of Cleaning Up the Mental Mess podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mental health and life. In this episode, I interview acclaimed science writer John Tierney and pioneering research psychologist Roy F. Baumeister, authors of the New York Times bestseller Willpower, on the power of bad, how the negativity effect rules us and how we can rule it, how correctly focusing on the negative can be good for our mental health, how to respond to negativity on social media and life, the benefits of a bad mood, and why it's good to be bad in parenting, how to use the bad to tackle crises like COVID-19, the low bad diet. John and Roy really do an amazing job of laying out a clear and simple blueprint for how we can recognize the negativity bias within us and harness it as a tool for sharpening our minds and improving our professional and personal lives. If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends and family and keep sharing about it on social media. I love seeing what you guys found helpful. Now, on to today's episode. I am thrilled today to welcome two incredible gentlemen into the studio with me today to discuss something so important. John Tierney and Roy Baumister. Wow. I can't believe I'm talking to you guys. This is amazing. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting us. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, you two have written a phenomenal book called The Power of Bad. I'm going to hold it up. And we're going to, I mean, just the title immediately has got everyone's attention, The Power of Bad. But before we dive in, I'd love you both just to... Tell us a little bit about yourselves. Tell us something that's not in your bio as well. People love to know the little, you know, the little ins and outs. So who'd like to go first, Roy or John? Uh, I'll start. Um, I'll tell you, I've been a science journalist at the New York Times for science magazines. And um, I started, and I'll tell you how I met Roy. That's not in the bio. That, that I was, I, I started writing the science column at the New York Times. And, and I was going to the big social psychology meeting and, and it was being held in Memphis that year. And I, and I thought, well, I'm going to a meeting with social psychologists. Wouldn't it be fun to go visit Graceland, you know, Elvis's home, and ask them why would somebody go visit, you know, this home? And I asked Ben Carey, who covers social science for the Times, why, you know, I said, who could you recommend a good social psychologist who would who'd be able to talk about something that weird? And he thought, he goes, you need someone with a really wide range, really interesting mind. And he goes, Roy Baumeister. 
And that's how I met Roy. And, and we ended up, we, we never got to Graceland, but we ended up, you know, writing a book called Willpower Together and then and then this book. And, and this book had answered a question. I can talk about it later, but it answered a question I'd always wondered in journalism, which is why are we so obsessed with bad news and why do people read it? So, and Roy answer, you know, helped answer that question for me. And once you go ahead. Okay, I'm a researcher, a psychology laboratory person, spent my career at various universities in the U.S. and most recently moved to University of Queensland for an adventure, live on the other side of the world. It's always a good thing for a social scientist to experience another, another culture and other things. Well, you live in a beautiful part of the world. Wow. All right. Well, thank you. And I got into this, it just became a pattern. I forget what were the first things I noticed, but I guess the unusual thing about this is that I have a lot of scientific publications and they're mostly linked to my big programs of research. And this is not, this kind of came out all by itself. It was a review article about 20 years ago that was the scientific basis for the book. And it's in the interim, it's become like my second most cited paper, you know, the track scientific influence by how often an article is listed in the in the references in other articles so this is quietly moved up to number two you know all my other top ones are part of my big research programs the willpower one i've done research on that for 20 years and so on but this one was kind of by itself but it was a, a really intriguing thing and can talk about uh, how it shaped up but you know initially i saw well, there was a pattern here that reminded me you know, here and, and a few other places, I noticed that the bad things seem to have stronger effects than the good things in terms of if there's a neutral control group, for example, the bad always had a stronger effect from it. So I said, well, let's let's find out what the exceptions are, and that will make a really interesting theory. And so we had all our pet hypotheses about the exceptions, but none of them panned out. It just seemed to be true everywhere. So it's a little disappointing in one side because it doesn't make as interesting a theory, but it adds excitement in the other thing because, you know, you've really captured onto one of the basic properties of the mind that it, it just reacts more strongly to bad things everywhere. Fascinating. Wow. That's what, and what a great combination to bring your, because you, because I know, John, you've, you've dealt with a lot. You've been really looking at this whole thing of why we attract too bad for so many years and written about that a lot in your columns, haven't you? So just to now put all this together and combine, and you've got some cool things like the bad diet, and so I, I want to get into all these things. That's some really, really great stuff. Well, there's so, okay, so, so I've got so many questions. So the first question I'm going to start with is just tell us a little bit about the book. Just like, you know, what have you, the big overview and then, you know, how, how, and then we can dive in a little deeper to, you know, the detail. Well, I'll go first because you know, I started, I had done the review article, which looked at the scientific findings in one area after another, you know, there's effects on memory and on emotions and on mental processes and brain scans and all these things found it over and over again. So I thought, well, this is already half a book there. But the editor said, yeah, the general public doesn't want to read a book that has the same point made over and over again, even though that's really what impresses scientists. So I was really lucky to, to team up with John, who has this great sense of not only what people are interested in, but also politics and relationships and lots of other things going on in the world. So the science part is is there, but John really brought the book to life by adding so much other perspective. Well, it was so much fun doing this because, you know, Roy, Roy is such a great wide-ranging thinker. And, you know, and, and this paper just applied to everything. And since Roy wrote it, it's just been cited, you know, political scientists cited to explain why you know, Germany started World War One. you know, because they, they focused on the bad. They were so focused on the threat 
and and you know it, it, and they overemphasized it and and just in my own you know field I, I a lot of my career was spent looking why do we keep hyping bad news you know there were always basically the journalists always look for the bad news and we always hype it and i just found throughout you know my career that just about every crisis you hear about turns out to be greatly exaggerated you know and i think it's one thing we can talk later but the covid you know crisis now it's been hard for people to take seriously because we're so used to all these things being bogus you know it's the boy who cried wolf you know we've heard them cry wolf so many times that people don't take it seriously when there is something real comes along and and even then there are there are risks we could talk about that more later but uh, you know that you still overreact to it and and you do more harm than good so and when i read you know roy wrote this paper bad is stronger than good a great title for a paper and i read that go that really that that's my whole business and and, <laughs> and you know and so and then and and then once you start looking around you see it in relationships you see it you see it at work you see it in school you see how students learn you see it in business and you see it in politics and public life you just see it everywhere once you start looking at it you know, this negativity effect, the fact that bad, bad emotions and bad events are just universally stronger than good ones that, you know, that's the negativity effect. So I'm going to echo what I know that the listeners and viewers are, are busy thinking at the moment. What is it and why? What is this negativity bias and why? In a nutshell, the mind reacts more strongly to bad things than to good things. So that's the, the short of this. And so as a result, we are biased to attend to bad things, to think about them more, to have stronger feelings about them, to remember them better, to react. And in planning on the future, we worry more about bad outcomes. Like John said, it, it seems to be something that's, that's true everywhere. But that's the basic point. It's also called the negativity bias or, or the negativity effect or negativity dominance. It goes by various names. But it is this, you know, the, that it just it causes your body to react more. You see it in physical reactions, brain reactions, the way people react in, in their lives. And it, it just, you know, bad rules us in so many ways that way the power of bad. So we and I guess the other you know point about the negativity effect is that it's useful in some ways and it's you know and it did evolve you asked why it's there and and it evolved for a very good reason that you know that it was more you know because death has you know life has to survive every day death only has to win once so so you have so you know so you really have to pay attention to bad things and the ancient ancestral hunter-gatherer savannah the ones who paid more attention to threats like poisonous berries or you know or predatory lions they're the ones who survive versus the ones who spend all their their time enjoying the good food or enjoying a nice sunset so it's a useful thing and it's still really useful in that in bad events it's the best way to learn you know bad, you learn from failure more than you learn from success and so bad bad fulfills this great function of teaching you things and keeping you alert to danger. So, and, you know, so in our book, I mean, we wrote the book, we want to tell people how to harness that power of bad when it's useful, but how to, you know, how to overcome it when, it, you know, when you're overreacting. I love that. I love that about your book, how you actually show, tell people how to harness it. So it's not just, oh, it's all bad. You just, you know, you're just going to always be oriented to the bad, but you actually, how you can take that and use that in a positive way. 
Broad suggestion to name the book Breaking Bad. Uh, <laughs> I, I've been calling your book Breaking Bad. I have to be honest with you. <laughs> well, we, we sure. liked it. We talked to our publisher. We said, we don't want to spend the, the rest of our lives saying, no, it's not a book about a TV show about making meth. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you had a whole, but I'm sure people bring that up all the time because it was like the first thing. Oh, you're doing the interview about Breaking Bad, Breaking Bad, Power of Bad, not Breaking Bad. You know? <laughs> so you know good. Someone just it's asked good. me about, about a title. Someone just said to me, did you ever think about titling it the power of negative thinking do we ever think of that Roy? that's not too bad no, a title, a good one. Yeah. Yeah. no i like your i like your one better i think okay. the power of good. bad okay. is much good. more attention grabbing and and i love what you i mean i'm a neuroscientist i've studied the mind brain connection for 38 years and done, i do clinical trials and i've just finished a set of and i deal with like the science of thought so what's fascinating for me when i was reading through your book and just seeing how you counter how you can use bad for good how you can and, and I want us to get into that it's, it's fascinating because that's exactly you can you change the wiring in your brain you know we, I look at the response I use QEGs and we use physiology and we use look at the body you know blood hormones DNA we look at psych, all kinds of psychological scales including like the narrative so now I'm talking Roy's language here with all these things and it's very interesting to see how when you are thinking when you manage your mind how that, that that deep down level, the non-conscious level, the deepest part of you, immediately is picked up in the brain, immediately. Whereas your conscious, you can kind of pretend on one level that you are consciously, you know, like I can, you can kind of kid yourself, but you can't actually kid what you really believe. And that conflict that, it, that and, and I see, and correct me if I'm wrong, I see that when we are aware of the negative, then that can be the prompt, because it's what I've seen in my research is that this can be the prompt that then makes you look for, okay, well, that's the negative. I'm aware now. It's like an awareness. Now, how do I now counter this? Is that sort of the idea that you bringing forth when you talk about like your bad diet and how you can make it work for you? The low bad diet is a suggestion for how to, to cope with this, but you're right in terms of how brain and mind work. You know, if it spots something negative in the environment, that sort of sets off the alarm bell and directs the conscious attention to move over there. So you see a crowd of faces and one of them is looking pretty angry you know even though you're initially just scanning the crowd not looking at all part of you spots that one and says aha look at that guy he's mad at you and and so your attention zeroes in on that and the studies confirm that people will notice you know if there's one happy face in the crowd one person liking you it's not like the same thing happens not to the same degree but it's the combination of scanning the environment for anything negative and then when anything is spotted directing the attention to that and, and devoting more processing to that because uh, that's the evolutionary result. That's what's important. What's the negative thing in the environment? What's the danger? What's the threat? First deal with that. Right. Um, and there are those experiments, the, the Stroop test, I think, too, where, where that a negative thing really interferes with your thinking much more than a positive thing does. You just immediately start focusing on that and, and yeah. you know, and, you know, and, 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 enjoy, and <laughs> I mean, when you're giving evaluations to an employee, it's a negative thing that suddenly just, you know, just turns their brain on alert and they forget everything they heard before that. They're so focused on the negative thing. So it's good to focus on the negative so that you can grow, but it's also good to balance it with the positive. Right. From what, what I see what you're saying in your book. Looking for something productive to do while in quarantine? Well, you know I always recommend making building your brain a part of your routine. Brain building is one of the best ways to improve your mood, cognitive flexibility, boost imagination and creativity, and help reduce anxiety and depression. So, how do you build your brain? Read. 
And one of the best ways to read and learn and grow is by using Blinkist, my favorite way to get more reading done. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information from thousands of non-fiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Blinkist is made for busy people like you who want to get the main points of a book quickly so you can start using that information right away. And with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book while you clean your house, exercise, or my personal favorite, while you go for walks. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed non-fiction books. All the books you want for all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leaf. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leaf to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leaf. The link will be in the show notes. You had some great comments, like you talk about bad parenting, bad in parenting and education and use bad to tackle the crisis crisis. Can you talk about maybe what of those topics would you like to dive into first? The the parenting is interesting because there's such a a pressure a lot of people feel to be the perfect parent and the uh, the competition to do everything right and and so on and to be the perfect mother and so on struck by the great sandra scara this line some time ago that uh, you really just need to be a good enough mother and and over the years the data have really borne that out that if you're in the top 90 percent then it, it doesn't make that much difference if you're in the bottom 10 percent you can really mess up your kid and they have even studies with iq with intelligence that you know you and I remember when our daughter was born, you know, I wondered, well, what, what Mozart songs do I need to play <laughs> in the crib to uh, give her the best intelligence? And I had some colleagues who studied intelligence. I said, what do I need to do so she'll be, she'll be intelligent? And they said, well, try not to drop her on her head. <laughs> and, and that, that was already in my plans, though. I didn't need experts <laughs> to tell me that. But, but they had very nice data showing that the worst parents really do make your kids stupider. Uh, you know, you can go from the genes to uh, how well does the kid turn out. The sm- the best parents do not make your kid smarter. They just enable the kid to live up to the genetic potential. So there's a clear sense. If bad parenting is really bad. But again, we're talking the bottom 5 or 10%. And the top 90%, it doesn't really make that much difference. So you could tell parents, give yourself a break. Stop worrying. You don't have to be perfect. Just avoid doing anything really bad. Right. I mean, that applies to everything. I mean, be a good enough partner or spouse, be a good enough employee or boss. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to avoid mistakes. You know, you know, one of the, 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 the sort of general concepts we offer in the book, we call the rule of four. And this is, you know, it's not a universal law of nature, but it's a pretty useful rule of thumb that, that it, it takes four good things to overcome one bad thing. So when you're trying to, you know, for self-improvement, uh, you get a lot more leverage by eliminating the bad than you do by doing the good. And, you know, it's a lesson that if, you, if you're late for one meeting, you don't make up for it by being early the next time. you got to do more <laughs> than that. And when, and when you're evaluating yeah. someone or, or if you have to criticize someone, don't think, well, you say one nice thing and one good thing, one nice thing and one bad thing, and it's going to even out. They just, you know, that one word of criticism is what sticks with people. And, you know, that one comment really 
that's what they go home thinking about the one nasty thing they heard at the party that they go home thinking about that instead of all the nice things they heard so so i think if you keep that ratio in mind and really try to you know try to really you know de-emphasize the bad get rid of the bad and then when there is bad you got to really compensate with a lot of good stuff for it you know that four to one ratio we talked about that's a really good tip so if you've had even for yourself let's say that you have a negative comment on social media or you someone climbs into you is to try and find immediately four good comments or five good comments and to try and keep the balance otherwise because if, if i understand from my research the brain is always trying to get balance and coherence and so whenever you so we, we pay attention to from my understanding we pay attention to the bad because it's thrown balance off and you see that in the brain you see the the different energy the gamma waves and the high beta and it goes into this kind of waterfall effect instead of a nice wave effect and so if you've got that your attention's been grabbed so now you're trying to get the balance again so the four to one the potential being drawn to the negative and then to balance the negative is because it's imbalanced so you want to balance it so the four to one helps to bring the balance back because we're so almost like obsessed with trying to restore balance that has the imbalance that's been created by the negative does that kind of align with what you what you teaching well yes i think the the key point in, in what you're saying is that it's not one good thing to balance out one bad thing it takes several good things you know more about the brain probably than either of us does but in relationships i know you know a lot of people are stuck at home with their long-term spouse and partner. Uh, and as uh, as uh, John had the line, you know, I married you for better or worse, but not for lunch. <laughs> not used to spending 24 hours a day with you. And so there you really have to be careful about the negative things. And if you do say something unkind, then try to say four good things to do it. I love that. I love that. And that's something super easy that people can do because you can catch yourself saying that negative thing. I think, okay, I've said one negative. Let me now consciously and deliberately say four good things. And that brings a balance back. I think that's fantastic. I mean, that's that in itself could save a relationship, especially (laughs) with everyone, as you say, married you for for life, but not for lunch. I love that. And so what you say about social media, too, you know, try and find four good comments. That's a nice one. I mean, another bit of advice we have is that that that, those one, that one bad comment has such an impact on people, such an emotional impact that, you know, one, adv- you know, one piece of advice is, is don't read your own comments. Have someone else. You know, when I started writing an op-ed column at the New York Times, which, you know, I'm kind of libertarian in my sensibility. New York Times readers are not. And and, and and another writer who, uh, he, he was a liberal who wrote for the Wall Street Journal and, and of course, has a different audience. And he said, it, you know, it's great. It's a great gig to be writing for, you know, for the other side kind of, you know, that keeps you honest. You can't just get away with being lazy. You've got to make good arguments. There's all that. But he said, that, you know, so it's nice to do that. He goes, but my one piece of advice is don't read the mail. Don't read the email. <laughs> <laughs> It'll just. And so our advice in the book is have someone else read it for you because there's, you know, I mean, you learn more from bad. And so, there, you know, the criticism can be useful, but, but you know, the personal stuff, the nasty stuff, you know, it's going to drag you down so much. You don't but have someone else go through it for you, pick out the useful stuff. And then when they give it to you, make sure they give you four good things for every bad. Exactly. And give it to you in yeah. such a way that it's actually a constructive learning lesson because you talk a lot about that in your book about how you can, you know, that, that, Bad is linked to learning. Yeah. I, I love that that combination that you highlighted. Can you talk about that? Well, no doubt that's one of the reasons the brain focuses more on bad things is that in order to get better, you know, that's where there's a problem. Something needs to be fixed. You know, if, if you're, everything's perfect and you feel good, 
you don't really need to change anything. So there's no learning agenda. It's just, let's keep it like this or let's do it again. Yeah, but you don't have to analyze if something turns out badly. Well, presumably it isn't all bad. So you analyze each part, what went wrong, what was exactly the problem, what can I do different next time? I love that. So it's it's constantly taking that that failure and turning it into a learning moment or taking that negative into a learning moment to improve and change. We write about called the marriage hack, as the psychologist Eli Finkel calls it, which is when you get in an argument with your spouse, and they, they, they did an experiment where they sent people home and they said, when you have an argument, you know, do two things. Try to imagine how a neutral referee would look at this. You know, what would they, you know, what would they think about this? And then the other thing, and that helps a lot because bad is a very personal thing. You know, the, the, when something bad happens to someone else, we're not as around, you know, we can see it and say, well, it wasn't really that bad. You know, the, you know, what, you know, but, but when it's personal, then we really react viscerally. And the other thing they told them to do was try to imagine some good that could come out of this argument. What could you learn from this? And, you know, we talked about, uh, we used this novel from Trollope called He Knew He Was Right. It's about this marriage that falls apart. And at each point, it's this, it's this perfectly happy couple that nothing really goes wrong, but they just keep escalating and misinterpreting the other one and taking offense. And at every point, if either of them had just stopped and said, what could I learn from this, you know, that I think I didn't mean any harm, but she reacted that way. So he should have thought, well, you know, I should do it differently next time. I, I should have made my point in a different way. And then, and and the wife kind of overreacts and her sister is saying to her, don't pay any attention to that. He didn't mean anything by it. And but she won't. And they can't learn, you know, from, you know, from their arguments. And that's what you need to do for a relationship to, you know, to grow and, and to grow for anything in life. Mm, that's so true. Cause you can actually, it takes you that one step further. Otherwise you just, you just say complacency and they'll just, I mean, that's just the worst thing we can do is just say complacent. Yeah. So that bad can actually push you to another level. Right. John's got me to reading Trollope's novels, and he, he's a, a fine writer, very interesting. But this particular one, I couldn't finish just because it's just the way he said it. And, and I kept reading it. He said, no, don't say that. No, don't overreact to this. No. no. He was like, read my book. Read my book. <laughs> if only they'd had our book. Exactly. That whole novel would have been different. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. You were going to say something, John? I was going to say that that, that same principle about learning from bad stuff, that when you're evaluating an employee you know, doing that or when you're evaluating a student, that uh, we talk about how to do this about, you know, get to the bad stuff probably early. Cause, you know, the natural tendency is I want to start with the easy stuff and tell them what they're doing well. And then, you know, there's a thing called the criticism sandwich that managers have been using for a long time, which was, you know, a lot of nice stuff, then put a little criticism in and then, and then a little nice stuff, and then you, they leave. And what they don't realize is the way the brain reacts is that, People are just sitting there waiting for the bad stuff, and you know, and 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 then as soon as the bad stuff comes, they forget all the good stuff, and so they walk out of that meeting thinking all oh, they're they're just obsessed, and they're demoralized. So it's generally better, you know, you can start off by saying, "We're not going to fire you. You had a good, you know, that," and say a few nice, but then get to the bad stuff right away. That puts the brain on high alert, and then put on lots of good stuff, at least four good things for every bad thing to make up for. And then also, as you said, to be constructive, to say, you know, to someone who doesn't do well in, in, in a group project, say, you're a great self-starter. And next year, we're going to have an individual, you know, uh, uh, we want you to do some more work on your own because you, you're such a great self-starter on your own. And you kind of, someone who has a hard time with deadlines, you just say, 
next year, I think we're going to do something differently so that, you know, that will be, you know, to do that. And, and so look at ways to, you know, to build on the future that, you know, to recognize what the problem was. You don't want them walking out thinking everything's perfect, but then, you know, you know, you know put a positive spin on it, how we're going to improve that next year. I really like that. So to go away from the criticism sandwich, I like that. So whatever, so the nice, the bad, the, bad, the, the nice again. So you're saying come straight in with a very clear, constructive down the line, these are the issues, and then go over, transition over to something that's the four good things, lots of good things. Yeah, I mean, that's generally a good approach. I mean, one other thing, there's interesting research where they've looked about how to deliver bad news. And, you know, some of the best work has been done by sociologists studying doctors because they give bad news all day long. And you'd think they would be experts at it. And what they found was that they're really not very good at it. And, and, and one mistake they make is to think there's absolutely one way to do it. And they found that people who are really doctors with a great bedside matter, what they really do is they, they ask a lot of questions. You know? and, and so we say instead of a criticism sandwich, you know, think of a menu, a criticism menu. And you can kind of say to someone, well, we've got some. And one thing doctors do, for instance, instead of saying, well, there's terrible diagnosis here, this is you, if they've seen any of the stuff themselves, say, well, what do you think about this? What do you think's going on? And let the patient say, well, it looks like, you know, we've got a problem here. And then you agree with them instead of that you're the bad guy telling them what's there and they, they want to start arguing back at you. It's not that bad or it's not this. So you basically, you know, let them say it. And then as you go along, really watch their reactions. You know, don't just, you know, and there's a tendency also when you give bad news that you want to start, you want to switch to something and let's get into how we solve the problem. Let's get into logistics. Let's get into something that's less uncomfortable. But give them some time to process the information, listen to them, and really ask questions and really watch how they're reacting to it. So, you know, and, and you know, so one way is, you know, well, we've I've got, you know, there's, there's some really great stuff happened and, and there's some stuff that we need to improve on. Which would you rather hear first? And most people want to hear the bad stuff first. They do. So get it out of the way and then because yeah. then you know that there's going to, okay, this is it. Now I can actually start doing something about it. Right. So that I love how you've explained that because it just, you, you know, throughout your book, you keep, you, you pair those two together quite very well. That there, There's this bad stuff, but then there's, hey, this is, that's going to open up possibilities for a solution. You know, you, you, you offer that all the way through, which is really good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Another thing, too, is, and this is from many years of advising PhD students and postdocs and so on, often the bad isn't really very bad. <laughs> and so, but they're nervous. They're waiting for it. And so if you start off with all this good stuff, they won't even hear it. You know, come on, come on, come on, get to the, you know, what's the, <laughs> what's the problem? And then so if you go through the problems, well, it's really not so bad. And if, if that's the worst there is, well, that's fine. And yeah, the room for improvement. And now let me hear the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really such a positive way of doing it. I mean, when I was doing my PhD, my, my mentors did this, promote, they called them promoters in South Africa. That's what they did. They would tell me, okay, these are all the red lines. These are all the, you know, the stuff. And then, Okay, now how do we build? So it's a, it is a good way to not, you know, do, it's better to get, and yeah. I love the one to four ratio. That's really excellent. I wanted to ask you, how is this related to catastrophizing this negative effect? There's a personal way it happens in that we just tend to immediately, you know, you think about the bad and, and, you know, and we've also got the sense to think the worst. We also have in our minds, there's, you know, there's a bias called the availability bias, which is that. It's easy that we overestimate how likely something is, how likely a catastrophe is based on how available that image is to our brain. And, you know, so we've just seen images of terrorist attacks and school shootings over and over again. So people just overestimate how likely that is and they have this exaggerated fear. 
It's something like 40% of Americans are worried that they or someone in their family will be killed in a terrorist attack. In reality, it's more dangerous to step into your bathtub. You know, the odds are that way. That, but people just have that image, and so they catastrophize that. And, and you know, so you want to try to overcome that visceral bias and, and use your rational brain to think about that. So, I mean, even here now in the COVID epidemic, I mean, it's very frightening. We're seeing these terrible images, and it's a real problem, certainly for some people. But, you know, the fact remains, you, you want your rational brain to tell you for probably 99% of the people, we don't know exactly yet, it's, you know, they're not going to die. And, you know, maybe more than that. We don't really know. But so, so you know, even if you get infected, it, the odds are pretty high that, that you know, I, you know, an awful lot of people, nothing happens to. So you want to try and keep that rational thing in brain, whereas I think people have this thing, oh, my God, there's a bug out there and it's going to invade me. And it's invasion of the body snatcher to those kind of. Horror images come, yeah. and you know, and, and obviously, I mean, it also shows this. You know, this epidemic shows that, or this pandemic, that there is a usefulness to bad. I mean, you wanna, you know, you want people to, you know, to be aware of this. You know, it was funny. You know, I was just reading something in Seattle when it started, and in New York when the when the people who've been studying the virus and seeing it starting to spread went to the the political leaders and the and the political leaders are well, we don't want to panic people about this and the epidemiologists are saying well you know panic's not a bad thing to get people <laughs> to change their behavior and you want people that you want them to start washing their hands you want them to start being more careful and so panic is a good thing now for a lot of things panic i think it, it causes bad things but if it makes you wash your hands more often that's a good thing that's a good thing you know you talk about that. i was reading about that this morning and i thought of your book because it is it's in seattle they the scientists said hey, make people aware, you know, be aware of the bad so we can do, whereas in New York, it was a little bit slower. Is that, exactly. I don't know, that's, that's the article exactly, that you, yeah, right. there's a good yeah. piece in the New Yorker by it, yeah. And yeah, I yeah. immediately thought, I read that this morning, I thought, hey, this is what these guys are talking about in this book, you know, so yeah, that's a really good point. And Roy, you wanted to say something? Oh, it's just one of the findings John found for our book that really made an impression on me was that after the September 11th bombings in New York 20 years ago or 19, that people became afraid to fly, fly in airplanes and so they drove more and that caused an increase in traffic deaths and more people died by the increase in traffic deaths than were killed in all those bombings that day. This episode is brought to you in part by International Justice Mission. For more than 20 years, International Justice Mission has worked to end slavery and violence around the world and create more just communities where people aren't trafficked or abused in the first place. And an important part of this work is to provide trauma-informed therapy and care to people who have experienced this type of abuse. People like Ruby, who is from the Philippines. Ruby was 15 years old when her parents died. Shortly after, she was offered a job at an internet cafe across the country. But as soon as she arrived, she knew she had been tricked. Instead of working at an internet cafe, Ruby was sexually exploited over webcams to predators around the world. In an IJM undercover operation, Ruby was rescued and brought to safety. But that was only the beginning of her journey to freedom. For years after her rescue, International Justice Mission supporters have walked with Ruby to make sure she has everything she needs to journey towards healing, especially trauma-focused therapy. Today, Ruby is safe. Because of the healing she received, she was able to start dreaming of her future again. She graduated from college and is considering pursuing a law degree next. 
Trauma-focused therapy is critical to help survivors move forward and heal. You can make this healing possible by providing an hour of therapy for a child like Ruby. For just $45, you can provide trauma-informed therapy that will change a child's life. Head to ijm.org forward slash Dr. Leaf and help vulnerable children heal by giving the gift of therapy today. That's ijm.org forward slash Dr. Leaf. The link and more details will be in the show notes. In clinical sense, we call it the clinical illusion and where you'll take like the, your, the people, research is done on, the, on a population and it's a percentage, but then it's it's generalized to the whole population. So you'll take one kind of pattern and then it's they'll study the whole population. Now it's got that when it's not, it's only a very small portion of the population. And so much mental health research is done like that. You uh-huh. know, and it's 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 actually dangerous. It's also catastrophizing what how things yeah. are, you know, to, it kind of puts everything out of proportion. You get the wrong perspective, don't you? Well you do and you and you get that so much from the way, you know, one of the things Roy found in his original paper was that they look back at all the psychology journals and textbooks and found they devoted, I think it was at least twice or two or three times as much space yes. to problems rather than to ways to help people. And then, during, you know, my business, journalists, we're in the business, you know, we only pick out the scary findings. So, every and, the, and one example we use is that everyone's heard of PTSD and it's led to this assumption that if you, there's a trauma in your life, you're going to be scarred by it. It's, it's, you know, it's going to forever. And what people don't realize is that most people, the great majority of people who undergo trauma emerge strong from it. It's called it's called post it's called post traumatic growth. But nobody's yeah, heard of that. that's it. Yeah. No, that, it's and it's related to neuroplasticity. It's the area that I work in. I'm with people in trauma throughout in war torn zones and uh, you all you name it. And you you actually we see the changes. You can rewire that. You can actually with neuroplasticity you can change. So it doesn't go away. Your trauma is still there, but you can manage it. But it's not like you stuck there and that that's your destiny. Mm-hmm. You know, you can the way you are managing that, you turn that around and you can make that bad into good, like you say. What do you find in your work with with war zones? I mean, do most people emerge stronger, do you find? So that? I've done I've done work in like post-genocide areas like in, in Rwanda. And what you find is that when people are allowed to talk about it and express it, not push it down. So when you actually acknowledge that this is bad, not just pretend it doesn't, doesn't exist, but this is bad, and you've got to then balance it with the good, like exactly like you said. So for example, in Rwanda, what they did was they immersed people in a toxic bath of toxicity. So for instead of moving on and accepting they all they did was celebrate the death and for years they had all the bones lying around of the people that were murdered and it was all just every they would they would have a hundred days where they would just keep replaying things on tv so people were kind of like COVID now immersed in the toxicity so your your mind and your brain merge with what you're focusing on so if that's all you're focusing on and that's why your one to four ratio is fantastic because you can't just go and focus on the negative and then think and then that changes your physiology that, that's those are the you you wire with that you merge so people People then we're building, you literally wire these protein structures into your dendrites in your brain that hold those images. And if that's what the energy has been given to, the, the, your brain then has this energy that's distorted and then it disrupts your body. You have this negative feedback loop. So you've got to actually balance it with a positive. And they were advised, for example, very badly, Rwanda, for example, they were told by psychologists in the United Nations that you've got to immerse yourself in it. But they didn't tell them that you've got to acknowledge, process and reconceptualize. And that's what I teach with my work. So with you've got to, whoever's been through whatever trauma. I've worked in apartheid South Africa, pre and during and post. And the trauma, I'd spent 25 years working in those in those areas where people were traumatized by the political system and all that kind of thing. You have to embrace, you have to process, and you have to reconceptualize. So when you when you guys talk about focusing on the bad, that's embracing. When you talk about all the things you know that you're counting, that's the processing.
understanding and, and reconceptualizing and the learning that takes place. And that's why I love your work, because you are doing, you're explaining something that people actually get, but you're doing it in such a positive way. You're giving solutions. So can you give some? Can you give some <laughs> solutions? Can you, can you take us through, I love your bad diet. Can you talk a little bit about that? The low bad diet, how you can master the power of bad. I love that. Well, the low bad diet is is basically that you're inundated, especially today. I mean, it's always been a problem, but the mass media is just geared toward bad because the easiest way to get a mass audience is with, you know, we all have the same universal fears of dying, the same. And so you can easily attract, it's the easiest way to attract attention. And there are these universal things everyone has, whereas the good stuff that we're interested in you know, the, you know, the, the, um, if we're interested in art or history, philosophy, you know, science, whatever it is, those things tend to be much more niche products. You know, there's so, there are people who are, who are civil war buffs in the United States that, you know, they're interested in cosmology and, you know, in, in, in the history of the universe. Those are more niche things and it's much harder with mass media. So mass media is all that bad stuff. And, and so I, and the, and the good news about social media, you know, we've heard all this stuff about how bad social media is. There's these ideas that there's Facebook depression and Instagram envy and that stuff. I, you know, and I'd heard about it and, and I was originally going to use that as an example of the power of bad. We have to do it. Then I started looking into the resources of people who've done it. And it turned out that that was kind of this bad hype that actually, yeah, they, they, there are problems, but actually social media is more positive than mass media. People, you know, people tend to share positive things more than the negative things. They also, people who tweet positively, you know, I, I mean, you hear about these awful Twitter wars, but in, you know, the norm is that if you tweet more positively, you get more followers and it actually spreads more widely. So, 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 so there's a benefit for being negative and, and you know, I mean, for being positive in social media. So if you can curate your newsfeed, so you're not just getting, you know, when there's a school ground shooting, when there's a terrorist attack, don't turn on cable news and watch, and watch live coverage for an hour. Just do something else. And, and when you curate your news feed with this low-bad diet, you can basically start getting more positive things Focus on. And it gives you a more accurate picture of the world. Because on any given day, there's a lot more than four good things happening for one bad thing. You know, the news, you know, the news only has the bad thing. But you know, if you broaden your horizons and pick the right people to follow on Twitter, the right friends on Facebook, you start getting that good news, and you get this accurate, you know, you get this low bad diet. I, I love that, and it goes to the question that you asked me earlier about the do, do people when from trauma recover? They do when you take them out of a toxic bath, when you actually reduce the when you not denying the negative, so you get the one, but then you make sure that you counter with the four, the six, or the whatever, and then you can rewire your brain so you can remember how you were. So these Ugandan child soldiers, or these people that went whatever people that have been through whatever they've been through post-apartheid or whatever, you can actually then, this is what I was, but I can learn it so that it doesn't happen again in the future or how I can prevent this or how I can, whatever, use this to grow. So what you've, reducing, looking at the good on social media, you know, I interviewed an epidemiologist the other day who's really understands what's happening on the front lines. And he made a comment that I tell everyone, and that is that for the first time, humanity is facing a global enemy. So all of humanity, for the first time facing a you know global enemy together. And the, the connections, you know, there's so much, as you say, on social media, people are all out there coming up with courses and support systems and just to help each other. So that natural instinct to counter the bad is with good is, is coming out. 
Well, we call it the Pollyanna principle, that the brain has these natural defenses against bad. You know, one thing they find is that there are a lot more words for bad things. You know, there, there are more ways to, to, to say something's bad than good, because the brain really distinguishes among all these things. But even though there are more words for bad things, you know, individual words, we use positive words much more often. The brain kind of compensates. We, you know, we do that rule of four subconsciously where we just use good things. And, you know, they find even on Twitter, for instance, you know, when they monitor these things called a hedonometer, I think I'm pronouncing that right, where they measure the positive and negative words on, on Twitter and on Facebook and in, in all kinds of media. They've done it in movies, books, everything. And they find that even on like a terrible news day when there's an awful terrorist attack, it, you know, things turn negative, but then people bounce back and they start, you know, you, they start sharing stories about somebody who was heroic during it, how somebody's coping with it. It's that real natural. I mean, just the thing we're seeing now at night when people are all, you know, banging pans and clapping every night, you know, that's, it's, uh, there's, there's that reaction to basically overcome the bad and let's focus on on the positive side of it. You know, I have to tell you, you know, there's been these funny findings that nicotine is protective against, you know, the smokers do not get COVID as much that it's been. And there's a theory. I mean, I'm not I'm not I mean, it, there's a lot of evidence and I, I'm. I'm not, I'm not urging anyone to smoke, but they're, but they're actually experimenting with people using nicotine ta- uh, patches on the workers because it might, because nicotine may interfere with the receptors for the virus. But somebody put out a thing saying we should have a clap for our cigarettes moment. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh gosh. And all the memes that, that I love that. And then it goes along. I can just see memes coming out of that, you know, and there's all the great memes that are out there. <laughs> if you can transition to working on curating your newsfeed, you've said that in Instead of obsessing about one snarky comment on social media, be a good enough partner. Do you want to take talk a little bit more about some of these other points? A cheerful outlook can be cultiv- cultivated. Well, one thing, I, I mean, stuff for relationships, some of the advice we offer, you know, one thing is, is, and this is is true for everything, but don't overpromise. You know, the, this is one of these things that you and they're really interesting experiments when where they they measure how people feel when they, when something is delivered early, you know, earlier than promised, or when someone gives more. And people don't really give that much credit when you do something extra. But if you fall short of a promise, if something is late, that makes a big difference. You know, and we all suffer from this problem called the planning fallacy. We all think you'll get, you know, that everything will. Uh, that we'll get stuff done more quickly than is realistic. So we tend to, you know, we're, you know, we're very likely to overpromise our partner. You'll all get this done. I'll do that. And when you fall short, that really makes a difference. So be careful in what you promise. And it's much more important to keep your promises than it is to go extra. It's we're getting back to this idea: be a good enough partner, a good enough parent. Not, you know, you don't have to be the super parent. Just basically get the basics done. So, you know, and, and so that's why. And th- then another thing is to remember that. You know, bad is really in the eye of the beholder, that if something really upsets your partner, you can sit there and tell yourself quite rationally, look, this is a trivial thing that, you know, and you could, your friends might all agree with you and say that, you know, yes, she's being silly about this. But if it matters to them, it's having that impact. It's having that big disproportionate impact. And you have to take that into account. And, Mm -hmm. you know, especially in relationships, when something does go wrong, it's really crucial to manage how you react to it because because of the power of bad they've done interesting experiments when they in these games called dictator where people you know cooperate with each other and it's it's a test of of whether people cooperate or not when someone does something nice for the other side the people tend to reciprocate more or less you know but when someone does something bad they don't just reciprocate they escalate 
And then, and then it goes back and it just spirals out of control very quickly. So a minor argument turns into a huge disagreement. Do you want to talk about that, Roy, or do you? Yes, uh, I remember being struck by that when we were doing the original research that, you know, of course, couples do good things and they do bad things and the good things have good effects and the bad things have bad effects on the relationship. The bads have more. But what really goes, what really in terms of statistical power for predicting the course of the relationship, one person does something bad and the other person does something bad in response to it. This is something to keep in mind when people are locked up together with their loved ones. <laughs> you have to not do anything bad if you can avoid it, especially if your partner does something bad. Don't respond negatively because once it goes, I mean, the broader picture is people may say that their relationships get better and better over time, but that's mostly rationalization. The, the researchers who track relationships over time, they start off happy. Some of them stay happy. Some most of them decline. There's no getting better. So the really thing to make a long-term relationship work is to slow down or prevent the downward cycle. And bad responses to bad behaviors are the biggest driver of downward cycles. So watch out especially for that. Mm, that's fantastic. Can you give an example? I know that that's really it's an, it's a, it's an excellent point you've made. Basically, being able to to avoid taking the bait when something happens. You know, someone says something, you, you did that, and it's, well, yeah. yeah, but you did that. You know, and that really bugs And then, well, well now yeah. that we're talking about this, here's something that really bugs me about you, and it just escalates. And, you know, there's a line, there's a great line when Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court Justice in the United States, on her wedding day, her, her mother-in-law said, in every marriage, it sometimes helps to be a little deaf. You know, and, and, and she said that she has followed that advice her whole career, including on the Supreme Court, that when someone says something nasty, you don't have to respond to it. You don't have to retaliate. Just ignore it if you can. Now, obviously, sometimes you can't. But but the other thing is when, when you know, a friend of ours keeps the, the, this thing, you know, on his mirror, you know, to keep himself uh, when he gets irritated by his wife's faults, he's got a thing on his mirror that says, you're no bargain either. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, and it's really keep these things in perspective and really also, you know, and then try to swamp the bad by, you know, remind yourself consciously of your partner's strengths. I mean, this is somewhat akin to, and we talk about this also about, about these, these exercises of gratitude, about counting your blessings. But think of your partner's strengths. And when they do something bad, you can think, well, yeah, it is bad that he's an obsessive overpacker. But at least when we get there, he's, you know, you know he's going to have all the stuff he needs and maybe something I need. You know, try and look for, you know, you know look for a bright side to it. And, and also, you know, remind yourself of your partner's strengths and also tell them when they do something good. Say, I really like that when you do that. I so admire that about you. And we, we think not to do it. And we think people, oh, well, they know that already. But it really makes a difference saying it out loud. And, you know, there's a great concept that they call positive illusions when they track couples and they, and they've, they've done these things where they, they ask the couples to rate their partners for various things and they find, and they ask the, the people themselves to rate themselves. And they find that some partners have this pretty unrealistic view of their partner that they rate them for strengths that they don't really have, but those couples do great. And what happens also is, is over time, the, the the partners start thinking about themselves. You know, if your if your partner really believes in you, then it it makes such a difference instead of just harping on the negative. You know, so and you start when someone says, "I really love it when you do that," they're going to do it again. 
you know, instead of just, you know, it's just, it's a great way that positive reinforcement. So. Oh, I love it. What if I told you, you could get high quality organic and non-GMO groceries delivered to your door for a lot less than you're paying now and help out families in need. That's what I'm doing since I discovered Thrive Market. As a proud Thrive Market member, I get the products I love and my paid membership provides a free one for someone in need, like a low-income family, teacher, veteran or first responder. I love getting all my clean beauty products like makeup and skincare from Thrive because they have the best prices for the best quality products. Shopping online is fun and so easy. No stressful lines and I could shop in my PJs from my couch. And as a member, I'm saving 25 to 50% off traditional retail prices and their carbon neutral shipping is free on orders over $49. Need any more convincing? Not only do I feel great about getting a deal on my favorite clean organic products, but I also feel great about helping to support families who need it most. In addition to membership matching, Thrive Market is matching donations to their COVID-19 relief fund dollar for dollar. Try Thrive Market and become a member risk-free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash drleaf. Join today and you'll get up to $20 in shopping credit towards your first order. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Dr. Leaf to start your risk-free membership and get up to $20 towards your first order. Thrivemarket.com slash Dr. Leaf. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. I love how you keep taking things that, you know, when you first look at the power of bad, it may seem that you're focusing on the negative, but all you've spoken about the whole way is how you can take that and make it positive. You know, you've just given endless amounts of positivity, which is wonderful. And you speak a little bit about, you've mentioned gratitude. That's one of the exercises in the book. Yes. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, they found, you know, in the positive psychology movement, and actually maybe Rory wants to talk about the positive psychology movement, because you've certainly been, been part of that. Positive psychology started, you know, as a historical phenomenon in the, in the field of psychology. It, it, initially, it focused on negative things and mental illness and problems and stress and how can we improve that. And, and only slowly people started to say, well, that's not all we should do in psychology. I mean, yes, of course, bad is stronger than good. It's more important. And the first thing is let's help the people who are really needing needing immediate help or having serious unhappiness and problems. And yes, but but then we should also, you know, getting to zero, to, to the neutral point, is not enough. We want to also do some studies into raising neutral into positive. And, you know, can we make people happier on a permanent basis? And one of the things that they, they did found that worked was to was with the gratitude exercise. You can't do it every day because you, you quickly run out. But think of if someone who did you some favor or something good some time ago and write them a letter or send an email or something and reach out and let them know. Or uh, the, the counting the blessings. I think John mentioned that earlier. Once a week or so on, sit down and list several things that you're thankful for, the things that have, have gone well. And it, it sort of directs the mind to positive things. Positive psychologists are now working on how to celebrate now, you heard some interesting new, new, new findings on that, you know, and your, your partner says, oh, I just got this award or something. And you say, oh, but that's great, dear. You really deserve it. That's wonderful. And you, you let it go. But no, you should instead try to share the experience. You know, what exactly, what happened when you found out? 
you know, did you open the email? You know, what was the first thing you suspected? What was it a reaction to? Tell me everything. And you try to share as much of the experience with them as possible. Our, our friend Marty Seligman was telling, he was uh, teaching some some people in the army, some of these positive psychology techniques. And he had this, this drill sergeant who was super serious and so on. And Marty told him, well, this is how you celebrate the next day. His son called and said, uh, or I guess he was talking to his wife and his wife says, all right, son wants to tell you something. And he says, dad, I hit a home run. And, and so the drill sergeant who had never done anything like this said, apply these techniques. Says, okay, well, tell me exactly what was the count, what was going on in the game? How did it happen? How did you feel? What did your teammates say? Did this, why did the kid say, are you really my father? <laughs> oh, I love that. That's so funny. So I'm not used to that. Oh, gosh, that's so good. Well, you just see how much good we can do if we change the way we, you know, we've got so many tools in our in our mental toolbox, don't we, to be able to be human. Always, I keep saying that. I keep saying we need to be human again. And I feel like this COVID-19 quarantine has, has actually taught us to really look down deep down inside of ourselves and, and you know, look at how we can connect better and get more deep and meaningful in our relationships and find those good things and the humor and turn the bad into good like you two are talking about all the time. No, it really does. You know, that process we're always talking about, uh, capitalization, I think, is, is the term for it, right? That, yeah. that, you know, the worst thing is if a friend or your partner tells you something good happened and you just nod, it's really, defla- but, it, but it, that's actually really bad because they were, they, were, they were feeling good about it and your reaction, it just deflates them. And then, then they, and they're angry about why, you know, why aren't I recognized? But all you, and it's so simple to do. I've started, you know, once I read about this research, I do it all the time. And, you know, it's just, wow, that's great. You know, what happened, you know, and that's so wonderful. And keep it just, it's just a few simple techniques. And, and it makes it, you know, there's a line we quote from Mark Twain saying that, you know, that, that you know, grief can be born alone, but, but for a joy to be appreciated, it must be shared. You know, and that is the, and that is, you know, that's really so true that you want to share joy. And, and so, and at least fake it, even if you don't care, at least oh, fake it. <laughs> I love that. Fake it. So, but, but that's so important. I, I just love the fact that you've said not just, not just to acknowledge, but to actually dig it. It takes what, five seconds, 10 yeah, seconds, I mean, just 20 ask seconds. A couple, just ask a yeah. couple of questions. Wow. That's really, that must be so, you know, how did it happen? You know, what's and the How next did you thing? feel? What's yeah. The, yeah. What's yeah. the next thing? Yeah. And it's nicer for you too. Exactly. Uh, for the partner, I guess you get to participate yeah. and share all the feelings and the excitement. So uh, yeah, and that's and that yeah. feeds back. And I mean, there's a bunch of quantum physics things I can think of that are going on there, and a bunch of brain things, and it's just all optimizing how we function as humans. Uh, you you guys are amazing. I just love your approach and what you've done and what you're contributing. It's just incredibly uplifting. Oh, you know, you. so it's really, really great. So can you, could you both give me, just to wrap this up, could you both give a, a pearl of wisdom? What would you tell people now in this COVID time? Or do you want to share something about what you're concerned about or what you're excited about? Or what would you like to say related to anything that you feel would help people? I know people are thinking about the pandemic. People have asked me about that. It's, it's sort of a, a coincidence that our book was published right at the, at the same time. And you know, I don't want to minimize their certainly bad aspects of it and people are dying and there are problems and so on but i have to say it's almost sure we're overreacting to it because that's just how the mind works that includes our leaders and the population and the leaders and the the people have to respond to each other and so on so i I, i'm reluctant to say don't worry it's not bad i mean that's 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 not the issue but 
but it's probably it's probably safe to say we are overreacting it's it's uh, not going to be as bad as certainly as the worst case scenarios that uh, were going to be featured in the, in the media cuz that's how they're their bread and butter you know, you so I love. I have to comment on that just because it's so. I love what you've just said. I've been trying to say that sort of thing a lot in in the all the talks that I give as well. S- similar lines to actually balance that that negativity because there's so much positive. And I always say the scientists are like the adults in the house at the moment. The scientists are excitedly searching across borders, boundaries. There's no competition. It's actually how do we solve this together? This is and it's progressive. Whereas the as you say the politicians and there's so much and the negative and even. The, the negative media, there's, if you look at the scientific media, it's actually, even though they don't have answers, there's a very positive collaboration that's happening as opposed to just being negative. And that gives more balance and perspective. So I think what I hear you saying is that if we try and be more like, like a scientist in our thinking, and we actually will be more realistic and positive and get a better perspective. And yeah, it's, it's, think of four good things for every bad thing. Try and read one news media that's negative, am I right? And then go and find four good things immediately before you go read another negative. <laughs> I love that. I love what you said there. Yes, John. No, I think Roy's is exactly right. We have a chapter in the book called The Crisis Crisis. And and there are three rules. We And, and that's our name for this this tendency that, that the world is always in crisis. There's always something that... Now, COVID is a real... I mean, it's a real pandemic. It's a real threat. So we're, we're not minimizing that. But the, but I still think... But the three rules we have when you're contemplating, you know, the latest crisis, whatever it is, and this is a general rule, is the number one, that the world will always seem to be in crisis. Number two <laughs> is that the crisis is never as bad as it sounds. And number three, which I think is the most important right now, is the solution could easily make things worse. And I think, you know, as we talked earlier, as we talked earlier, you know, the power of bad, the negativity effect is very useful in getting people to pay attention to this pandemic. You know, that as we said, panic can be useful, that you want people to wash their hands, you want them to be careful what they do. You especially want people who are vulnerable to this to, to take special precautions and for everyone else to, to protect them too. But the danger is that once you've done that, then you start, you know, shutting down economies, you start doing all kinds of other things. And the danger is that it's going to cause more loss of life and a lot more more damage than the problem itself. And, you know, we now have gotten so focused on this one particular issue that, that, you know, that every COVID death now looms much larger than, you know, than all the other. I I saw one estimate, someone was saying that, and I, and I don't know if this is realistic or not, but if it was someone throughout this estimate that because of all the people that aren't going in to be, you know, for routine checks, for diagnostic tests, that 50,000 50, people could die of cancer because their cancer wasn't detected in time. Yeah. And so, you know, so basically, by, if you get so focused on this one form and this one threat, then you cause, you know, much greater problems down the road. So, and and we also have this bad tendency we focus on immediate threats. It's hard to think of long-term threats. And I think, as you say, it's getting that scientific, that rational brain. You want to get one engage that and, and overcome your visceral response to bad. Oh, wisdom. That's just brilliant. I love what you both said. That's incredibly good wisdom and incredibly encouraging for people in this time. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing your time and everything. It's been great. I could I could talk to you for hours. It's like a million more questions I have to ask you. But thank you. And I hope I could invite you both back again sometime because it's been wonderful. I, I think there's a lot of er- other areas we could dive into as well and talk about. It's really interesting. How can people find out about you and your book? 
Well, it's the power of bad. It's you know, it's available at booksellers everywhere, and it's from Penguin Press. The power of bad, how the negativity effect rules us, and how we can rule it. And I, I guess you know, we have to say that to really overcome the power of bad, you have to buy the book. So. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed this, and it's been amazing. Okay, so thank, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Okay, Stay bye. Stay safe. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.